Thanks, Alina. Um, <clears throat> I want to mention we had two new guys up there leading worship, Josh and Daniel. They do a good job. We had Tyler. It was a pleasure as always. You all did a wonderful job. Thank you so much for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Stephen. I'm an elder candidate here at Aletheia. Uh, and if you want to know more about that, come to the members meeting directly following the service. Um, we picked a great week for that because there's like nobody here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so it's only members here pretty much. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a few visitors that I've seen come around. Um, uh, really appreciate you guys coming out today. For the past two weeks, we've been going through this book of Zephaniah and our Forgotten Books series. It's this teeny little book of prophecy at the end of the Old Testament. And Kevin and Derek uh, brought chapter one to us for the past two weeks. They did a great job at that. And the chapter one is all about the day of the Lord this coming time of judgment that's going to happen and God is going to judge the people of this region. <clears throat> and it's a warning on the people. And so I'd really encourage you guys to go back and to listen to their sermons. I'm going to do some referencing uh, today for some of the stuff that they talked about. Um, so really encourage you guys, if you haven't heard it, to go back and, and download the podcast and listen to that. Um, today, we're going to go through chapter 2. Uh, Alina read it for us this morning, and you may have noticed there's a lot of like really weird words in there, uh, a lot of different names of countries and, and places that we don't have on our map anymore. Uh, and so I want to spend a little bit of time uh, going through and doing some background information for that. <clears throat> so if you could put the maps up, David. Okay. So here's a big map of the region. Um, you can see you've got Judah down here in the uh, bottom left corner. Uh, and then all of that green is the territory of the nation of Assyria. That was the major power of the time. Um, they were the Roman Empire of its day, and they controlled the whole world. Further to the east, you see Babylonia. Uh, they had been conquered by the Assyrians, but at this time, during when this book was written, they had rebelled against Assyria, and they were starting to flex their own muscles and to rise up in the east, and they are about to go and conquer that entire territory. Everything on the map within the next 50 years would belong to Babylon. Uh, you can go to the next map. Here's a closer up map of uh, Judah. And you see Judah and Philistia over there on the right. Uh, and on the left, it's hard to see, but you can see Ammon and Moab on the right of the second map. Uh, and you can see Philistia there as well and Judah. And those cities in Philistia uh, are some of the cities that Alina met, uh, mentioned this morning. Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, and Gaza are over on the left-hand side, and Ekron is over there just north of Gath. Now, those were the main principal cities of Philistia at the time. And if you don't know who the Philistines were, they had been warring against the people of Israel since they inhabited the land. The Philistines uh, were the Phoenician peoples 
of old. They, they settled all the entire region of uh, the Mediterranean coast. They had different colonies and cities along the Mediterranean coast. From over here in uh, the, the Near East where Israel is, all the way over to the, to the south of Italy, there was a big city called Carthage. That was the same people group, the Philistines or the, the Phoenicians. Um, and in this region, they went by the Philistines. Uh, the other two groups of the peoples that are mentioned are the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, the Moabites and the Ammonites are actually related to the people of Israel. They're descended from a guy named Lot back in the Old Testament. He was Abraham's nephew. And Lot had two daughters. And without getting into the whole thing, one daughter, uh, her son started the nation of Moab. The other daughter, her son started the nation of Ammon. And they were also fighting against the Israelites ever since they got to the promised land. Now, the third and fourth, or uh, fourth and fifth groups of people that are mentioned in the passage are the Cushites and the uh, Assyrians. I mentioned Assyria, and you got to see their empire. So the Cushites are a group of people that are also known as the Egyptians. Uh, they're probably called Cush in this context because the nation of Cush was from the Ethiopian area down south below where the map is, and they conquered Egypt at this time, and they were ruling over Egypt. So the prophet Zephaniah probably just lumped them in and called them the Cushites because that's who was controlling Egypt. <clears throat> now, again, at this time, the entire nation, or the entire world was controlled by Assyria, except Babylon. And Assyria had taken over Israel about 170 to 100 years before this, is, this book has taken place. Uh, and they conquered Israel and they took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, into the first exile. Uh, Jerusalem and Judah was spared by God. And so they would go and continue on. Zephaniah is preaching during the reign of Josiah, who Derek talked a lot about in his sermon. Josiah was a good king. He was a reforming king. His father had rebelled against God and set up altars to foreign idols and set up all these horrible practices uh, of pagan worship um, that are just awful. Um, they would practice cult prostitution. They would sacrifice their children on altars and do all sorts of evil, horrible things. Josiah came in, and they found the book of the law, which we think is probably the book of Deuteronomy, and he restored Israel to the worship of God. So the prophet Zephaniah is writing somewhere in that time period, somewhere within the 30 years uh, period of the reign of Josiah. <clears throat> One last thing that I want to look at before we get into the passage uh, is a little note on the nature of prophecy. If we go to Deuteronomy 18.22, Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and he's telling them that prophets are going to be sent by God. And this is how you're going to know that a prophet is from God. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. 
you will need you will not uh, you need not be afraid of him. So a true prophet is going to speak from God, and their message is going to come true, whatever they say. If they have a message and a sign, the sign is going to come true, and that's going to prove that the message the prophet is saying is from God. A lot of times in prophecy, the message is coupled with the sign. Uh, In this case here in Zephaniah, we have the message first, and then the sign comes after. And so when Zephaniah is prophesying, when he's preaching, he's telling the people, what I'm saying is going to, or the message that God has given me, you need to listen to it. And when this comes to pass, you're going to know that the message is true. So now, let's go ahead and dive into chapter 2 of Zephaniah. He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the Lord's anger. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. So the first thing that we notice when we come to this passage is that the prophet Zephaniah uh, sees the day of the Lord as being close, as being imminent and almost upon them. And we know that because he says the day is passing away like chaff. You need to listen. You need to reform now because this time is not going to last because the day of God's judgment is coming. Uh, for this reason, I, I think Zephaniah was probably writing towards the middle or the end of Josiah's reign. Uh, now, like I said, Josiah was a reformer king. He brought the people back to Yahweh, back to God. Uh, and the people reformed, yes, but not enough. Uh, the book of Second Kings and Second Chronicles both tell us that the, the Passover feast was celebrated in this time like it had never been celebrated before. They went back to the law and they did what it said. But you get the implication from reading Zephaniah that what they were doing was just on the surface. They were celebrating the Passover. They were doing the things that the law required. But they were doing it just like they did things to the foreign idols. Just like they made sacrifices to Molech or Ashdod or Asherah. They would worship God and say to themselves, like Kevin told us last week, God's not going to do anything good. God's not going to do anything bad. He's not really watching us. So when the people reformed, they just did it on the surface. And they just uh, were paying lip service to God. The second thing that we need to notice when we come to this passage is that the first two verses are a warning for God's chosen people to put their trust in God. Too often, 
uh, people would rather put their trust in things that we can see and things that we can touch and hold on to. These feeble substitutions of God that are so temporary and pass away so quickly, just like the chaff in the wind. Uh, In the time of Zephaniah, the things that they would have put their trust in might have been their homes, the houses, to protect them, to shelter them. They might have put their trust in their fields or their crops or their trade to provide for them. They might have put their trust in the walls of their city to protect them against foreign armies or their own army to protect them with their swords and their shields and their spears and their bows. But God says through the prophet Zephaniah, put your trust in God alone. David wrote in Psalm 62, verse uh, 5 through 8, he said, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from God. He only is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So here, King David, hundred years before, hundreds of years before the reign of Josiah and the time that Zephaniah is writing, King David, all the way back then, tells the people, put your trust in God alone. Because he is the only salvation. He is the only shelter. He is the only one who protects. He is the only one who provides. Put your trust in God. We should put our trust in him alone. Today we put our trust in our jobs. We put our trust in our homes, our grades. We put our trust in our cars. We put our trust in everything but God. It's a human thing. But we need to trust in God alone for what we need. The writer of Hebrews uh, says likewise in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Guys, this is why reading and studying the Bible and, and going through passages of Scripture is so important. We cannot drift away from the message of salvation. We've got to be careful to stay on the message of salvation. We have to put our trust in Christ alone for salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can redeem us. He's the only hope, because otherwise we have nothing. Otherwise, we're left with our jobs, we're left with our homes, we're left with our cars, and we all know those things pass away. 
Your home can burn down. Your car can get totaled. You can get fired unexpectedly from your job. You can be putting all your faith in your education, in your school, and you can flunk a class. All of those things are temporary. Everything that we put our trust in here on earth is temporary. But when we put our trust in God, He is eternal. He is not temporary. In the continental U.S., we live in this age of prosperity uh, that's pretty much unparalleled in all of history. We're living in this time of peace in this country and uh, wealth like the world has never known. Uh, The continental U.S. hasn't seen war on our lands for over 150 years. We are blessed beyond any measure in this. But we can't put our hope in that blessing because it won't last forever. I'm not trying to be a prophet and say America's going down or anything. But we know that stuff is fragile and stuff does not last. What happened in 1929 when they had a similar age of prosperity? Stock market crashed. People were starving. Stuff doesn't last. Salvation is not found in wealth, is not found in stuff. It's found in God alone. And it does not depend on anything but Jesus Christ and his victory on the cross. Turning back to Zephaniah, verse 3. The prophet tells the people that they should seek righteousness and humility. For the people of Jerusalem, this meant doing the right thing according to God's law. They had just found the book of the law in this time, in this generation. Maybe they're about to find it. Maybe they found it years ago, and they've been trying to follow the law. But it means for them to go back and to read the law and to do what the law says and to act justly according to God's law. Not to pervert justice by having judges, bribe, bribing judges so that they give the rich guy a good ruling. Or taking property from a poor widow who can't support herself. These are the things that the law of God deals with. Some of the things the law of God deals with. It deals with a lot. There's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament law, direct commandments. Uh, Some of them deal with ceremonial laws. Some of them deal with judicial laws. Some of them deal with society. Uh, But the people of Zephaniah's time would have understood righteousness according to God's law to mean doing what the book says. Now, Zephaniah tells them their only hope is to do what the book says, to seek righteousness and seek humility. He doesn't even say, if you do this, the day of God's judgment isn't coming. No, he says, God's judgment is coming. But your hope for salvation rests in 
being righteous according to God's law. Uh, Luckily for us, uh, our righteousness is based on our salvation in Christ. However, we should act righteously according to Scripture. We should strive, just like Zephaniah is telling the people here, we should strive to do the right thing. Luckily in English, uh, righteousness and right are the same root word. So it's easier for us to understand what righteousness is. It's doing the right thing. A lot of times, uh, the right thing is hard to figure out. A lot of times, doing the right thing uh, is difficult. Let me give you an example. Uh, The people in China, Christians in China, are not legally allowed to meet together to worship God according to the gospel, according to scripture. They are forbidden from meeting together to worship God. So what is the righteous thing for them to do? The Bible tells us in Romans 13, 1, what? We should obey the law and respect the government because God is the one who put them in charge. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Therefore, uh, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Between a rock and a hard place. Because the Bible also says in Hebrews 10, 25, that we should not neglect to meet together with other believers and worship God. So what's the right thing to do? Should we follow the book and obey the government? Or should we follow the book and disobey the government? What's the right thing to do? Uh, Luckily for the people in China, uh, the book of Acts has something good to say for them. Uh, Peter and John were faced with a similar situation, not the same. They were put in prison for days because they were preaching Christ and Christ's resurrection. And the government at the time uh, did not like that. So they put them in jail. And after a few days, they brought them out of jail and they put them before the assembly of the government and they told them, don't you share the gospel anymore. Don't you tell anybody else about Jesus. We are telling you, as your government, you cannot do this. Do not tell people about Jesus. And here's what they said in Acts chapter 4. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have, been, what we have seen and heard. God's law trumps the law of the land. Whatever God's law says is above what the law of the land says. So if the law of the land says you can't meet together in a church like this, and God says, don't stop meeting together in a church like this. We need to follow God's law over the law of the government. But even that is an easy situation because we can look to Scripture to find the answer. But what happens when you have a friend who used to be a Christian, used to follow God, and used to love God, and you grew up with them, and 
then they turned away from God. They tell you they don't believe that God exists anymore. What are we supposed to do? And they tell you, don't talk to me about God anymore. What are we supposed to do? Because God, the Bible tells us we need to preach the gospel to them. But I've got a relationship with this person, and they don't want me to talk about God. But I still love them. So what do I do? I preach the gospel anyway. But that's not the easy thing to do. Too many times we're faced with the dilemma of the right thing to do and the easy thing to do. And more often than not, I find in my own life, I know what the right thing to do is, but it's not the easy thing to do. So what do I do? I cheat on a test or I tell somebody a lie because it's easier than explaining the truth because it's easier than studying for 20 hours to get a good grade. I speed on the interstate because it's easier for me if I get there faster. It's easier for me to cut somebody off, to disregard somebody else and to cut them off in traffic or get mad at the person in front of me who's driving really ridiculously slow. Uh, I struggle with that one. If you don't believe me, just ask Myra. She gets mad at me and tells me, don't do that. <laughs> Stop getting so angry at people on the road. Um, I struggle with that one hard. Trouble with my patience. But this is where humility and righteousness meet. This is where they come together. Because the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, tells us that we need to put the needs of others before our own. Not to put our own needs second. That's different. It sounds the same. Not to make ourselves lower than somebody else but to treat them as higher than us. It's a very subtle distinction. But we're not supposed to act like we're dirt, but we're supposed to act like they're a king. Philippians chapter 2 tells us uh, in verse 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others to be more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which, as many of you know, is the most humiliating and painful death that a person can have. You literally die by suffocation while you have your arms and feet pierced out, stretching you to the sides. You have your joints dislocated. You were put up there naked as the day you were born to humiliate you. He humbled himself even to that point for us. 
We need to practice Philippians 2. This is the key to living out the righteousness of Christ. Kevin and the guys from Alathea Harrisonburg uh, always used to say, we need to rock Philippians 2. We do need to rock Philippians 2. Because it changes everything about the way that we act and respond to the world around us. It changes our perspective when we're interacting with a server at a restaurant or somebody at a fast food counter or a drive through window. It changes our perspective when we're dealing with co-workers at work who might be difficult people. It changes our perspective when we're driving on the road and the guy in front of you just won't get out of the way. Putting others' interest as more significant as our own will also help us to see them the way that Jesus sees them. Help us to putting, helping us to put their needs above our own is not just about their temporal needs. Is not just about what they need here and now, but it's about their eternal needs as well. Because when Jesus looks at you, he knows the greatest need in my life is not stuff. It's salvation. The greatest need in my life is to be saved from myself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation is the most significant need that a person has or ever will have. Because nothing in life is permanent. No matter if Christ returns tomorrow or a year from now or 10,000 years from now, life is fragile. It can end in an instant. Sorry, I just had flashbacks to uh, the Avengers. <laughs> Boom. Anyway. Life can end in a heartbeat. Your situation can change in an instant. Nothing lasts forever except God. Except his salvation. Except his loving care for us. So what can possibly be more important? What can we possibly need more than the salvation of God? So your friend who doesn't believe in God anymore and doesn't want you to talk about it, they need God more than anything. They need salvation more than anything. The person who's rude to you at the drive through window, they need salvation. They need God more than anything else. The person who is a co-worker who is just a pain and complains about everything and nothing ever goes right for them. They need Jesus. Because nothing can save like Jesus saves. For the nations of Judah, judgment came, or sorry, the nations around Judah 
It ended just like Zephaniah said it would, just like Alina read this morning. For Gaza, you can put the maps back up as well um, after we read. Uh, um, for Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, will be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds of flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening. For the Lord God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, and the land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot for return for their pride because they have taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish the gods of the earth, and he shall, and to him shall bow down, each in his place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain with the sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste in the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts, for everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Historically, Egypt, the Cushites, uh, you can see this map here, uh, the, the one to the left, the Cushites went up the coast through the Philistine territory to go up to fight Babylon in 609 BC. And Josiah, the righteous king, the reformer king, God's man, went up and opposed them at the city, fortified city of Megiddo because he didn't believe the, the Egyptians were just passing through. Josiah was killed there, and most of the army of Jerusalem was destroyed. And the Egyptians went to fight with 
the Assyrians against Babylon and lost. They were destroyed. Their army was decimated and they were killed with the sword. Babylon from there went up to the capital of Assyria, which was Nineveh, and sacked it, burned it to the ground, destroyed it. And then chased Egypt, the remnant of their army, all the way back down to Egypt and went through the Philistine territory. And because the Philistines let them pass through their land, Babylon judged them and punished them for opposing Babylon. And they burned the primary cities of the Philistines to the ground. Ashdod and Ekron and Ashkelon and Gaza. Ashkelon was last. The Babylonians uh, encircled it. It was a fortified city, uh, but they got in through the walls and they burned it to the ground in 604. And they took the Philistines back to Babylon as slaves, leaving the other three cities empty, except for a bare remnant who fled. Jerusalem was spared because it opposed the Egyptians and because it surrendered to Babylon without a fight about a year after Ashkelon was destroyed. The first wave of captives were taken back to Babylon as prisoners, exiles at this time. Among them are some extremely, very recognizable biblical figures like Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They left in this first wave taken back to Babylon. The nations of Moab and Ammon uh, both sided with Babylon against Judah and against Egypt, but were betrayed by Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. And they were destroyed. Their people weren't taken into exile, they were just wiped out. And the people that were left were destroyed by the Arabian tribes who came up from the south and who live there now. Moab and, and uh, Ammon, nobody's ever heard of them anymore. The prophet's word came to pass so that the people of Judah would see it and repent before it was too late, would turn to God for their salvation before it's too late to practice righteousness and humility before it was too late. The word of God came to pass, just as the prophet said it would. Life is fragile, and it's fleeting. We don't always have the time that we think we do. We can't squander the time that we've been given, or it'll pass away like chaff. We today need to turn to God and to follow Christ, to pursue righteousness in Christ, to pursue humility in Christ. Because God has given each and every one of us a certain amount of time on this earth. In a moment, we're going to take communion uh, like we do every week here at Aletheia. Uh, communion is a uh, time of worship and experience for believers 
uh, that we do in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Where he paid for our sins and passed on his righteousness to us. So if you're a believer this morning, I invite you to take communion with us. And as you do, before you do, reflect on the message of Zephaniah. Reflect on what he said uh, over 2,000 years ago to the people of Judah. Reflect on his message to trust in God alone for our salvation, to trust in God alone for everything, and to pursue righteousness and humility. Uh, if you're not a believer, um, I thank you for coming. I ask that you don't take communion with us. Um, but we're so glad you're here. And we're so glad that uh, you've come to visit us this morning. Um, additionally, uh, during communion, we're going to have some of the elders in the back and some other leaders. If you need to go back and pray with anyone or would like to go back and pray with anyone, we're going to have that for you as well. So let me pray for us and we'll close this out. God, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for sending Christ for us to die as a sacrifice on our behalf. God, I pray that you would work the message of Zephaniah into our hearts this morning. That we would pursue you with everything that we've got. And stop relying on these substitutions for your glory. God, I pray that you would Help us to see you clearly and to be humble servants. Father, thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given us. Amen.